Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, In Full Assurance. Our fickle souls might find it dubious, but God's word seems rather plain on the matter. God has promised to save us, and he is gloriously able to save us. Fanny Crosby said it really well in her famous hymn, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The name of this message is In Full Assurance. I know some of you are thinking, eh, not, not as good of a title as you've come up with in the past, Eric. That's sort of what I think, too. However, I'm standing on this title, and I like it. It is perfect for what this message is. The word assurance is something that probably some of us in here have struggled with in regards to our Christian faith. In other words, it's not that you don't believe you're a Christian. However, there can be an instability in your soul in regards to something as simple as your salvation from sin or the penalty of sin, but also, more specifically, any assurance that you have in overcoming sin, it might, you might be a little wobbly neat. Assurance is a part of the gospel. It is a gift of grace, and it is not meant to be left off to the side. However, for some of us, you feel a little awkward moving into the territory of assurance. To be absolutely assured of something? That seems a little too overconfident. Depends on what your confidence is being placed in. If your confidence is being placed in you, your work, your merit, your purity, your morality, I agree. Not a lot of assurance there. However, there are certain things that we can place our confidence in with certitude, with an absolute confidence. As we begin here, I want to sort of review something that we covered with the students, uh, it was like Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. We were talking about faith. And basically, faith could be defined as the eyes of the soul. You see, we are looking at something. We are beholding something and weighing the evidence that is before us. And so we talked in that message about the concept of doubt. And in the church of Jesus Christ today, we've accepted doubt. And we've allowed it into the corridors of the church of Jesus Christ. It's sort of like, well, it's just normal to have doubt. It's just normal. In fact, some of one of our leading authors today in the Christian world says that doubt is merely the skeletal structure upon which faith grows. And I would say that doubt has nothing to do with faith. It is the antithesis, the great opponent to what faith is in a Christian's life. So here, imagine that you're the judge and the jury. And over here is one attorney, and we could call it of the natural realm. It's, it's the devil, uh, and he has his plea. In the garden, he had a tree with some fruit on it, and he made his appeal, his legal argument before Eve. And then we have over here the word of God, the unchanging word of God. It has been stated, remember God in the Garden of Eden? Thou shalt not eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, the day in which you do, you will surely die. The word of God, clear, expressed, articulate, he didn't stutter. What he said is true. However, we have this other appeal. In your soul, faith is defined by where you turn those eyes. Did you know that you can have faith in something outside of God? You know that you could have faith in the devil's word? 
And what happened in the Garden of Eden was Eve placed faith in the devil's word. And as a result, everything crumbled in her existence and subsequently Adam's existence and subsequently ours. Okay? When we are weighing the facts of a matter, we must choose in our soul where to turn our gaze. When you turn your gaze exclusively towards the word of God and actually deny any evidence that comes from this side of the ledger, any evidence, it doesn't matter if what God says is being defied by the natural realm. The illustration I gave this week was Jesus said to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death. That's the word of God. The word of God on the matter is this sickness will not end in death. But then what's happening in the natural realm? What is this attorney laying before Mary and Martha? Uh, Lazarus is dead, Mary and Martha. Uh, I think you need to turn your eyes away from this promise from Jesus and begin to evaluate this evidence that I am building. Not only is he dead, but now he's wrapped in grave cloths. Not only that, but now he's stuck in a tomb and a stone is rolled in front of it. Not only that, but one day has passed. Not only that, but two days has passed. Three days, four days. Take your eyes off this. Turn and listen to me. Doubt is turning from the revealed truth of the word of God and consulting and taking the eyes of your soul and looking at the evidence that actually attempts to refute the word of God. Okay, so one of the things that we're going to build on in this message is the concept of faith. Full assurance has no basis unless its eyes are fixed on that which God says, believe in. God has made something very clear, and he says, believe this. The entire work of a believer is defined by God, is to believe. It's that simple. To believe. Your job is to believe. Your job isn't to save the world. Your job isn't to bear the sins of this world, to take the penalty of it, to bear the wrath of God. That's not your job. He did that. Your job is to believe that the work he did was sufficient. Your job is to believe that what God says in his word about the word of God made flesh is true. And when you fix your gaze exclusively in a covenant relationship with that fact, with that truth, you can be stable. In fact, Jesus, the way he says it is, you know, you you believe in this word, you build your life upon it, and you will be like a house built upon a rock. And when the winds and the rains of this life come, and by the way, this is winds and rains over here, coming from this slick attorney over here. Winds and rains, and they beat against the house that you've established and built upon this word with utter confidence. It will not fall. Okay, so let's begin this journey. Assurance. Let's define it. 1828 Webster's Dictionary states that assurance is firm persuasion, full confidence or trust. Now, as we're going through this list, I want you to evaluate your soul before God. Do you have assurance in your position in Christ Jesus? Do you have assurance that the things that Jesus Christ did were for you? If the answer is no, that's fine. That's what this message is about. However, I want you, those of you that have been hanging out in the church, I want you to question the fact of if you have this, Firm persuasion, full confidence or trust, freedom from doubt. Whoa. Certain expectation, the utmost certainty 
firmness of mind, undoubting steadiness, intrepidity. With a bold courage, you stare at the word of God and say, I have the utmost certainty that God has said it and he cannot lie. If he's promised, it's God that promised and he can't lie. He can't go back on his word. Why would I turn and listen to this? It doesn't matter what is being said over here. If it attempts to defy God, who are you going to choose? You're going to listen to the devil or God? Well, for many of us, we've spent a lot of our life staring at what the devil has to say about life, saying what the devil has to say about our soul, even telling us what God thinks about us. We're listening to what the enemy has to say on it instead of going to God's word and saying, but what does God's word say on that matter? Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, and even that word boldness is going to allude to the concept of firm assurance, absolute certainty that you are welcomed in. No one in their right mind is going to boldly traipse into the holy of holies unless they know that they are secured by the blood of Jesus. Do you not know that the holy of holies should be struck dead? No one can enter the holy presence of Almighty God without some means of entry outside of ourselves. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, or his body, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Listen to this. I made it big for you just so you wouldn't miss it. In full assurance of faith. You know that you are being beckoned into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and you are to enter in full assurance. Huh. In other words, God's not saying you need to enter in with full assurance and then not willing to give it to you. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Listen to the final statement in this little scriptural sequence. For he who promised is faithful. God has promised. And what does it say in Hebrews about the God who promised? He is faithful. Which means when you put your faith and your confidence in him, he will fully meet that faith. He will fully respond to it in the matter, manner that he declares he will. He is faithful. He is worthy of our faith. He is able to receive our faith and respond in accordance with it. In fact, scripture even says, and will go exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. So he's not just faithful, but he's faithful in a measure that actually astounds the soul. That which he promises, he will do. The three key ingredients to full assurance. So there's three things that we're going to dig into. Faith, which we've just begun to talk about. The power of God. And the nature of God. Now these three things might be somewhat nebulous, and strange and hard to comprehend as we start. One of my goals in this is to try and make them grippable. We talked this week with the students. This is week one of Ellerslie. And in week one, oftentimes truth can feel like a slippery bar of soap, a wet bar of soap, where you get it for a second and then it slips out. And I understand that. And the goal of a teacher is to help you hold it. It's not to just have it pass through your hand and say, hey, I gave it to you, but to help you hold it and to have a grip on it. So faith, the power of God, and the nature of God. 
Hebrews 11.6 talks about all three of those. Okay, And so this is a very interesting statement. And when I'm walking someone through the gospel, this is one of the starter scriptures that we will bring up. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Speaking of God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you see that faith is necessary to approach God. We must respond in faith. It is impossible to even please God without faith. And so you cannot not have certainty in God. You cannot study the enemy's goods, take his fruit, and still at the same time please God. You must choose which attorney or which evidence you are going to heed and listen to. It is a decision of the soul to doubt God, to unbelieve or to lack belief towards God, is to believe something. It's to believe the devil. It's to believe the natural realm. It's to believe the world's assessment of God. But to choose to believe God means to disbelieve what the devil says, to disbelieve the systems of this earth and all that are applying their accusations against God. And you say, I believe you. And I believe what you say about yourself is true. And that's faith. Faith is turning your back on that which everyone else may say, every other voice, and believing the voice of God, believing the revelation of God. Where do we find the revelation of God? Is it something we discern inwardly? Is it something like, I think I know God's word just because you had a dream? It's revealed. Scripture. You see, Scripture is the word of God. It is not the words of men, even though it was written by men. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is, in fact, the word of God. And therefore, it bears the nature of God. God cannot lie. This word cannot lie. And Jesus, then, is the word of God, the text of Scripture, if you will, made flesh. And so when we believe the word of God in text and the revelation of God... It leads us. What is the logical next step? To believe the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. And that is where our confidence lies. We believe in Jesus. And that is the summation of the entry point or the doorway into the life of God. That is how we are saved. But it starts by believing the scriptures. If you didn't have scriptures, you wouldn't understand Jesus. And so scripture is the basis of faith. And then the basis of faith in Scripture leads us to Scripture made flesh or in body form in Jesus Christ. And we put our confidence with certainty and assurance in what he did and in who he was and in his ability to save us. So, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. You know how strange it is to come to God if you don't believe that he is? That's a funny statement. He is. He is what? Shouldn't, it be, shouldn't there be another word there? It must believe that God is love? At least put something in there, Eric. I, well, I'm not responsible for this. You know what this is talking about? This is the fact that God exists, that God is who he says he is, that he is self-fulfilling himself. He is Yahweh. He is I am that I am. Because he says that. That's the name he gives himself. I am. I am that I am. He doesn't say, I am love, because love is just one dimension of who he is. He doesn't just say, I am just. He says, I am. He is everything God is and always has been. The self-defined. He is. And so we must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, what sort of God is he? 
He is the God that has revealed himself in Scripture. And that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you diligently seek your God, guess what? His nature is such that he will reward you. So ingredient number one. Remember, we went through three things. Faith, the power of God, and the nature of God. So let's start with ingredient number one, faith. These are the three ingredients of a full assurance. So this is the same scripture we went through, but I'm going to emphasize it from the avenue of faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe. So the concept of belief or the element of belief or the attribute of belief in the Christian life is not to be understated. Now, belief is not just mental assent where you just pass a true-false test. It's like someone says, so do you think the word of God is true? Do you think it was written, uh, actually, that it bears God's message, that it is God's word? And you could say, true. However, what do you do your entire life? You stare at the enemy's evidence. It doesn't matter if on a test you can pass it and give the right answer. If you really believe something, what should be demonstrated in your life? It's demonstrated by action. It's demonstrated by your behavior. If I believe I'm married, guess what? I live as if I'm married. And so it's not just making a statement about something. It's actually demonstrating that that is your reality. If you believe Jesus is your Lord, guess what? You treat him differently than if you just believe he's a buddy. However, when you examine certain people's souls, you begin to recognize they say that they believe he's Lord, but they treat him as if he's just a chum. And as a result, their actions are demonstrating the fact that their statements of belief are not true. And so we demonstrate what we believe by how we behave by what we do with it. If you believe the word of God is the word of God, then what it says is binding in your soul. It's God speaking to you. If you believe that the word of God is just merely the words of men that is endorsed by God, and he, you know, he signs the back of it or endorses the back, says, pretty good book, God. Then guess what? When it says things to your soul that you're not comfortable with, what are you going to do? You're going to turn over here and say, now what's your opinion on that matter? You see, but if you believe the word of God is the word of God and that it is true, it cannot lie. Whatever it says, even if it's uncomfortable, you say, I believe it. God changed me by it. Okay, so that's faith. Ingredient number two, the power of God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The power of God comes down to a very simple thing. He is able Imagine that you believe that God is or that he exists, but is he able? When you put your faith in him, is he faithful? A God who is faithful is a God who is able to be faithful. You see, we do not serve a limp-wristed God. We do not serve a God that is unable and ill-equipped to perform that which he promises. Instead, what does it say in Hebrews? He that promised is faithful. Abraham believed that the one who promised was able to perform all that he promised. Are you? Do you believe in the power of God? Do you believe that God isn't just talking, he's a nice guy, and he means well, but that he's actually able, by his power, to do precisely that which he promises? All right, so he is, and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. A very fascinating statement. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Where should your confidence rest? 
Not in what men say, even about God. Your confidence, and that's what he was saying even when he came. It's not just what I'm saying about God. I want your confidence to be in the fact that he is able. He is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He will perform that which he promises. He is faithful. Ingredient number three, the nature of God. Nature, meaning the framework of his behavior, that which is the source or the wellspring of the things he does, his nature. I know you're getting used to this scripture, but there's a reason. I'm emphasizing the fact that all of these things are part of faith, the power of God, and the nature of God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder. That's his nature. He's a good God. You see, it's not just that if you diligently seek him, he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't feel like it. I don't, know. I don't like how you keep your hairdo. You know, I, I don't know. You just have that one look in your eye. I don't like it. I'm not going to reward you. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is constant. He never changes. It says that there's no shadow of turning in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's the same towards all of us. He's God. He can't alter his nature. He is who he is. He is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. His nature doesn't change. So if you start reading the word of God and you begin to recognize his nature is one of an abuser and he wants to harm you and harass you, uh, that's a little scary. However, it's the opposite that's true. God has come to bring us life in that more abundance. He is interested in establishing us and healing us and restoring us. Introducing faith, also known as ingredient number one. So remember we went through three ingredients to full assurance. The first one being faith. So let's dig even deeper into this. It says in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. Then again in Galatians 5:6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And yet again in Ephesians 2:8, you are saved by grace through faith. So we can't just throw out faith and say it's a bonus package to Christianity. It is essential. We are saved by grace. That is just a very set and established concept in the Christian life. What saves us? Grace. Who is our Savior? Jesus. Jesus and grace are synonymous. Grace is the action of Jesus, the action of God to save. The person of grace is Jesus. Okay? So we are saved by grace. But how? How do we receive that salvation? We receive it through faith. In other words, if you're listening here saying, but I don't feel saved, and the enemy's saying, yeah, but you have to feel this, you have to do this. Oh, yeah, well, you have to fix that your life first. Get all that immorality out first, and you're heeding all this instead of turning to the one who can save by faith and excluding this voice and being exclusive towards this one and saying, God, what must I do to be saved? Don't heed this. He'll tell you everything but the truth. And you'll spend your life attempting to please God, but there is nothing you can do outside of faith that will please God. It's faith that pleases God. It's confidence in Him, His work that saves you. You cannot do a work to save you, and that's exactly what this slick attorney is going to try and tell you. You better clean up your act. You better get this straight. Otherwise, you could have no part with that God. He did it for us. We must turn to him and find our salvation. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man is Jesus. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, let me stop there for a second. I'm about to read through the New Testament and where, what it says about the concept of believe. Turning from the slick attorney and believing his words to believing what God says. The first illustration we see on this is the concept of the serpent being raised up in the wilderness. It's sort of a strange statement. So must Jesus be lifted up? A serpent that was a bronzed serpent. Here we are in the wilderness. Uh, the Israelites are stuck in the wilderness, and they're not very healthy at this time. They're bickering, they're mumbling, and they're groaning and grumbling about the fact that they're in the wilderness. They have manna to eat. Why are they here? They would rather be back in Egypt. And so what happens? There are these serpents that begin to encroach upon their territory and start biting uh, some of the members of Israel. In fact, thousands upon thousands of them were dying. And so they cried out and said, we were wrong. We shouldn't have said that. God, we're sorry that we allowed sin into our hearts. And so God's solution for them, for this sin, or we could call it the snake bite. The solution for the bite of the snake, by the way, remember this attorney? Uh-huh, the serpent. The, by the solution for the bite of the serpent is that a bronze snake will be put up on a pole, on a stick. And anyone that looks upon it, see, anything that hangs on a tree is cursed in the Hebrew culture. It means that is going to absorb and take your penalty. This, but you must turn to it and look upon it. That was the assignment. If they didn't look upon it, they would die of their snake bite. So to be saved from your snake bite, what did you need to do? This is really interesting. You had to acknowledge your snake bite. How do I know that? Well, because you wouldn't, if you weren't acknowledging it, you wouldn't go and find the bronze serpent and look upon it. So to acknowledge your snake bite, you had to travel to where that bronze serpent was in the ground, standing on that stick, and in front of all Israel, you had to acknowledge, I'm snake bit. And then you look upon that and say, God, in obedience to your word, I believe that as I look upon this and acknowledge that I was snake bit, I will be healed. Belief. It's in obedience, not to your emotions, but to the word of God. What would this slick attorney say about that? What would that do to help you? Why would looking upon that? You don't want people to see you and to know you were snake bit. It will give you every reason why you shouldn't just do that which God asked you to do. However, what if you just heed the word of God on the matter? You repent and you say, I was wrong. And you say, this is what God says. What would you do? You would go to that bronze serpent and you would look upon it and say, this will be my salvation. This will be my deliverance. This is be, will be what heals me. So I'm here to tell you that Jesus came. And because of your snake bite, known as sin, he was cursed for you. And he was put up on a pole. And he says to you in his word, if anyone will look upon me and know that my work is for you, that my death is instead of you dying, that I bore the curse that otherwise you would need to bear. And the only way for you to be healed is for you to rise up amidst Israel and to acknowledge your snake bite and to look upon me. You will be healed. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise in the word of God. Do you believe it or not? 
For God so loved the world, this is the classic one that's put up in football stadiums everywhere, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. What are you required to do? You're required to acknowledge you need help. The cry is, what must I do to be saved? What's Jesus' answer? I'm asking that you believe my word. I'm asking that you go out of your way and look upon that tree, and that in seeing that tree, you will see that which was done to save you. And when you look upon it in confidence and in faith that that is sufficient for you, you will be healed, you will be restored, you will have life that right now you do not have. So whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise in Scripture. That is fact in Scripture. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned. When you turn and believe, when you turn and put the eyes of your soul upon the evidence of God and say, I believe your evidence, and I turn my back on the evidence of the devil, then, it says, you are not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already. If you turn your back on what God says and you listen to this and this, this voice is tutoring you and how you should live your life and how you should be right with God, you are condemned. There is only one means of getting out from under that legal condemnation that is over your life, that just penalty for your sin, and that is to believe the record of God, to believe what he says on the matter. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. Did you hear that? That's a promise. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not, the Son shall not see life. He who believes not the Son shall not see life. But what will they see? They'll see the wrath of God that abides on them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. How are you going to find legal justification from your sin? Is there any clearance? Is there any hope? The Bible says yes. You are a sinner. According to the law of God, you have transgressed the purity, the standard of righteousness and holiness that is God's. And the only way to enter into his presence and have right relationship with God is for a just and satisfying offering for that sin. And Jesus himself says, I was that just and satisfying offering. Where where is that stated? In the word of God. Do you believe it? Because the Bible over and over and over again says if you look upon that just and satisfying offering as if it is truly just and satisfying for your soul, you will have life. There will be no more condemnation over you. You will, in the process of your faith in Christ's work, be justified, made right before the law. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. 
For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How do we receive the promise of the Spirit? Through faith. By turning and believing the word of God. That's how we receive the promise of the Spirit. It's not by you doing some grand dance routine. By saying the right thing, it's by doing that which the word of God tells you to do. Believe. Believe. God desires to give you the Spirit. God desires to give you salvation. God desires to give you life. God desires to justify you. You must believe. But the scripture hath concluded, all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. You know what it says in Galatians 3.22? It's concluded. It says, scripture has concluded that all of us in this room are under sin. You know, so you might not feel like you're under sin, but what does scripture say? It says you are. So what might you want to do? You might want to go to the slick attorney and say, did you hear that? He says that we're sinners. What do you think about that? What do you think the devil's going to say about that? Oh, Christians. They're always trying to make you feel bad about yourself. What we teach over here in the sly attorney camp is self-esteem. We want you to feel good about yourself. You know what God says? You are a rebel against my law. You have usurped my position in your life. The only way to find life is to give up your life so that I can heal it, so that I can take your life and make it what it must be. But you must believe. You must turn your back on all those other voices that are enticing. You must accept the fact that you are a sinner. The Bible has concluded that fact. Do you agree with its conclusion? Or are you going to fight it? I say have faith in God. And say, whatever you say, God, is correct. I am not as I ought to be. You are right. And I believe your word. He that believes on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believes not God hath made him a liar. Did you hear that? If you do not believe God, do you know what you're saying about him? You're saying he's a liar. You turn to this voice, you know what you're saying about God? You don't believe he's telling the truth. Because if you actually believed God is truth, if you actually believed that he's telling the truth, what would you do? You'd believe. It's that simple. That's what it says. He that believes not God hath made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his son, And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is where? In his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son hath hath not life. Sort of just logic. If you try and go here for life, you'll never find it. There's only one place to find life, and that's the truth. The one who cannot lie. You call God a liar by turning away from it and looking for another source. You either face up to the facts that God is right, otherwise you'll do a lot of wandering in the wilderness and you'll have a very hot eternal existence. The power of God, a.k.a. ingredient number two. Remember the three ingredients to full assurance? Faith, the power of God, the nature of God. So now we're going to drill down a little into the power of God. Now look at this. I gave a little subtitle to this one. We'll call it the focus of faith. Faith needs to have something to focus on. You're ready to believe, maybe. You're like, God, I want you. What must I do to be saved? What do we need? We need a focus. We need something to aim our soul towards. Remember those eyes? We need to focus them somewhere. God has given us his message. God has given us a record. We put our confidence in that, the power of God. Okay, so 
we'll go into this so that it makes a little more sense. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What does that mean? Well, let's go into this. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says something very interesting. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So according to Romans 1, what is the power of God unto salvation? It's the gospel of Christ, which is sort of strange. What is the gospel of the power of God? Is, so, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, listen to this last line, the just shall live by faith. How are you justified? Where is the righteousness that you need to enter into the throne room of grace going to come from? From you doing some good deeds over here? Saying, how many more things do I need to do to be right with God? He'll keep giving you a list. Well, I think you need to do this as well because God's not going to be happy with that. There's only one way to get the righteousness that you need to enter into the courts of heaven. And that is from Jesus Christ. He's the only righteous one. And so, just, the just, that means justified. That means right with the law. You try and be right with the law outside of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one that ever did it. And so where do you put your confidence? In the one that has done it. Jesus, I need your righteousness. I don't have it in and of myself. So I turn to you and I allow you to clothe me in your righteousness. Okay, so what we have is this concept of the gospel of Christ is the power of God. So the power of God equals the gospel of Christ. Now, I have a new formula for you here. The power of God equals the work of the cross. The power of God equals the ability of Christ to save. So the good news, in essence, is the fact that Jesus has come and done a work that we ourselves couldn't do. And he is able, in and through his work on the cross, to save us. When we believe, it unlocks the avenue. It's like this pipeline. But we have the pipeline turned off. All the grace of God is available to us, to save us, to rescue us. But the pipeline is closed. Belief is saying, God, you say that it's through this pipeline and this pipeline alone. What must I do to be saved? He says, believe that it's in the pipeline waiting for you. And you open up the pipeline and you have access to everything Jesus did on that cross. Believe. Turn from all that voice and say, I believe that God did it. I believe that God is able. I believe that his work on that cross is all that I need. It's sufficient for me. And it will accomplish in my life that which I can't accomplish in my own. A quick meditation on the power of God. For God so wants you, for God so loves you, for God so yearned to set you free, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived the life you couldn't live yourself. He lived in perfect righteousness without the spot of sin upon him. And then in your place, he died your criminal's death. He took the just punishment that was rightfully yours to bear, and he bore the wrath of God that your sin deserved. God so wants you, God so loves you, God so yearned to set you free, that he suffered for you, he died for you, and his death legally absolved your, you from the penalty of your sin. 
His death annulled the power of the flesh in your life. His death offered you liberty from the controlling faction of the law of sin and death. And his death sets you free from the power of darkness. It finished the legal work of justice and wrath and accomplished the perfect work of righteousness. That whosoever looks upon this perfect, justifying, redeeming, purifying, cleansing, forgiving, sanctifying work with confidence in its merit to save will be saved by it. It's a promise. But you must look upon it and declare that Christ's work is the work that saves. You must believe that what he accomplishes for you and that he intended it for you and that he meant to save you. You must know your need to be saved. You must recognize that without this saving work, you cannot be saved. God so wants you. God so loves you. God so yearned to see you free that he created a means by which you could be rescued. That means is himself. He is the rescue vehicle. And to get inside this rescue vehicle, known as the person of Jesus Christ, all you must do is believe. Faith is the only access. Faith is the only way inside Jesus. And Jesus is the only means by which a man or a woman might be saved and brought safely unto the Father in heaven. When you believe, you are brought inside the strong tower of Jesus. You are hemmed inside his rescuing clothing, known as righteousness. You are placed inside him like a passenger on a jetliner. And where that jetliner traveled 2,000 years ago, you too are able to travel as you abide in faith in him. And if you are found in him by faith, then when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, you too are brought to the cross in him by faith. Then the old life you once lived is crucified. And when he went to the grave 2,000 years ago, you too go to the grave. And your old behavior, your old manner of living is buried and no longer visible to this world. And when he rose from the dead, so you too rise from the dead unto a new life in him. And the life you now live in your body is a life lived by faith that he manages and directs. And when he ascended to be with the Father, you too ascend to the Father. You are brought near to the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not your work, your goodness, your morality that brings you into such a sacred and holy place, but rather his work that does it. And faith in his work is what allows you to draw near with full assurance. God so wants you, God so loves you, God so yearned to see you free that he has brought you near by the merit of his shed blood on the cross. He has given you access by faith in Christ into his very throne room of grace. And in this throne room is everything that you could possibly need for life and godliness. Everything you could possibly need for obedience, triumph, love, and right action. The power of God has made available to you the power of God. So let me read that line again because it might seem like I messed it up. The power of God has made available to you the power of God. God, in his power, worked to work. How was that work accomplished? By his power. And it's a perfect work. It's a satisfying work. It's a just and legal work. It perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. Bore all wrath of the Father. It's perfect. It's everything you need. The power of God has made available to you. What? The power of God. The very thing that carried Christ To walk through such a perfect work is the same thing that now has been made available to you by the work of that cross. The power of God is purchased for you, made available to you the power of God so that you can now live this life in a way that pleases God. He has made his very life accessible to you that it might come and indwell you, fill you, operate you, empower you, and love and live in and through you. By faith you have been clothed in Christ's work. And by faith, you can also be clothing for his very spirit in order that his work can continue on earth in and through your body. 
So it's not just the work that Jesus did in his body, but now we become the body of Christ. And he continues his work on this earth in and through a body, in and through us as his clothing. God so wants you, God so loves you, God so yearned to see you free that he exerted his power on your behalf. He sent his son, Jesus, to exert his almighty power on the cross. And in this power, you are to believe. In his powerful work of redemption and rescue on the cross, you are commanded to trust. And if you do lean all the weight of your confidence on this power of God, you will be saved. Okay, well, let me read that last line again. If you do lean all the weight of your confidence on this power of God, you will be saved. God is able. Do you believe it? What you want to do is lean all your weight in this direction. Say, my God is able to save me. His work is efficacious. Big word. That means it's effective for my soul. Okay, remember there were three ingredients to full assurance. Faith, the power of God, and the nature of God. So now we have ingredient number three. Now look at the little subheading under this. The confidence of faith. Do you remember what the power of God was? It was the focus of faith. Your focus is on the fact that he is able. He can do it. It's God. He can do it. Now, imagine you have faith and God is able, but what if he doesn't want to do it? You know how important the nature of God is in your assurance? What if God is schizophrenic? What if, yeah, he might want to save one, but he doesn't want to save you. You know how confusing that can be to a soul and how unstable you can be if you don't know the nature of God? Matthew 7, it says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. Did you, look at that line. I'm going to read it again. Everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeks, finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? See, this is describing the nature. And here, Jesus is appealing to the nature of an earthly father. And he's saying, if your son is asking for bread, are you going to give him a stone? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, listen to this line, very important, how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Jesus spends a lot of time on this theme. It's a very interesting theme, but what he is doing is he's fully revealing the nature of of the heavenly father. How did he do it? In and through his own life. He even says that. You've seen me, you've seen the father. So who Jesus is, is a revelation of who the father is. The nature of God was perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story he shared of, it's typically known as the prodigal son. We could call it the waiting, long-suffering father. However you want to look at that story. But what you have is a young man who somehow was associated with the promises of God, with the inheritance of God. Somehow he was close to the intimate reaches of his father. And he saw this inheritance, that he had something, and he spoiled it. He took that inheritance and he spent it in the world. He spent it upon his own pleasures, his own carnality. Now, it's very important to realize that this man who has tasted something at some level has spent it. Some of us can identify with this. and Some of you that have just arrived at Ellerslie feel this full weight. Does this man have an opportunity to believe? Because he has spoiled that which God has entrusted him. 
It's a very delicate issue for many of our souls because we willingly did something. We knowingly behaved. There we are wallowing in pig slop and in the mud. And what does it say? He came to his senses. What's happening to you? You came to your senses. Now, I'm going to plant a little seed in here. How do you come to your senses? Coming to your senses, is that a work of you or a work of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in case you're wondering, it's a work of God. It's a work of grace. If you come to your senses, I want you to recognize God is bringing you to your senses. And this man began to recognize that even being a servant in his father's house was better than where he was. And so what did he do? He repented of his behavior. He was being wooed back to his father's house. Now what Jesus does in this story, because every good Jew listening to this story could fully understand, that man deserves to be stoned. That man, according to the law, deserves to be cast out. Look what he has done. He has lived in a complete disregard to the laws of heaven. That is not a good Jew. Stone him. Kill him. Take him outside the camp. Watch the father's response. The one who is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the embodiment of the father. As he describes the father, it's a description of Jesus. It's a description of everything we are turning to and believing in. What is the father doing? He is looking. He is watching for that repentance, for that turning. See, he knows he's awakening that boy. But then there's a calling home. And when that son is a distance off, the father is watching, sees him, throws all dignity to the wind, and runs to his son, plants a kiss upon his cheek, embraces him, gives him the fatted calf or the fatted pig. I don't remember. what It wasn't a pig. Uh, a fatted calf, I'm guessing it was. The fat, he gives him the ring and his best robe. He literally clothes him and adorns him in his love. Let's ask a question. Is this prodigal worthy of such treatment? No. What do we get out of this story? How bad the prodigal is? Or do we see how amazingly beautiful, gracious, and merciful, and kind our Father is? We do not deserve to have any of the benefits here. Some of us have tasted of the benefits here and have spent them in the most horrific and blasphemous ways. We are in a very delicate state of soul. However, if you're here, very likely there has been a stirring and an awakening. There is something that God is doing. He's whispering to your soul saying, come back. But you don't know if you're deserving to come back. I'm here to tell you, you're not. But he's inviting you. It's not because you deserved it. You didn't deserve to be there in the first place. It's because he's inviting you. I'm going to walk through that in just a second here. Luke 15, and he arose and came to his father, speaking to the prodigal. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. Someone in here was thinking it was a fatted pig. I can't believe you did. Fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, listen to the joy of the father. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Okay, so this is going to be important. I'm laying a foundation here for full assurance, because some of you have been the prodigal. And you might be the prodigal currently. 
where you have spent something. You had knowledge of the Heavenly Father. You had an understanding. How do we deal with it now? Do we have right to come back? How do we handle it if we're in the pig slop? And we know better. The rest of the world may not even know better. We do. What do we do? This is very important. So this is a review. The three key ingredients to full assurance. You notice that I keep harping on this? I don't want you to lose these. Faith, the power of God and the nature of God. Now look, I put a little addition to these just so that you can begin to wrap your minds around something. He promised. He is able. What's his nature? Because he can't violate it. He cannot lie. When God promises, he can't lie. Now get this. You take one of those out. You take out the fact that he promised and all he is is able and he cannot lie. Well, if you don't have a promise, it doesn't really matter if he's able to do something for you. He didn't give you any promise, any assurance that he was going to do anything for you. Now let's take out, let's say he promised and then he, he cannot lie, but take out he is able. What if you take out he is able out of that list? You have a well-meaning God who would love to save you. You just, you know, hey, you're just unsavable. I mean, it's going to take a lot to be able to save you. You're rotten. So even though he means well, he'll wave at you as you go to hell. Blow kisses. But he's not able. You know how important these three things are? These are anchors for your soul. That's what Paul refers to them as. Anchors. He promised. He cannot lie. But he is. He is a rewarder. He is able. The one who has promised is Faithful. Assurance stems from these three things. If you are missing one, you're unstable. You don't have the confidence. And when the enemy starts whispering, his whispers make more sense. Because you are not firmly established on the nature and the power of God in faith. Full assurance. So I have a little subtitle for this one. The rock upon which we stand with certain expectation and the utmost certainty. Some of us in our souls, we believe in God, don't get us wrong, but we waver like a wave of the sea, as it says in James 1. We go back and forth. It's like, well, I want this to be true, but what does it say over here? What are you, what's the philosophy of the age saying? What do they say? What does this book say? Here's the key question in life. What does God say? Ignore every other voice. I know that sounds like ignorance. I know it sounds like narrow-mindedness. I know it sounds like closed-mindedness. But it's open-mindedness. It's just not open to anything in this direction. It's open to God. In my marriage, I do not have an open marriage to anything in this world. Any other girl does not have access to my life. I do not have an open marriage. I have a closed marriage. You could call it narrow if you want it. I don't care what term you give it. It's called a covenant. It's exclusive. When we enter into a covenant with God, it's an exclusivity of eyesight. And we will not put the eyes of our soul upon any other maiden. The eyes of our soul are given wholly and fully to our beloved. And it's exclusive. It is not an open marriage that we have. It is a covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. The first one. This, these are going to sound like funny statements at first, but I'll explain them. I'm going to go through eight statements. I'm going to say eight statements of fact that are the basis of full assurance, okay? Faith, that it is impossible to woo yourself. If you are longing 
for God. Where does that longing come from? God. If you are desiring to be forgiven by God, to be near God, to have a right relationship with God, where does that come from? God. If God is longing for you to return, if God is wooing you, that is one of the basis of full assurance. As we go through this, I'm going to build a case here, but what I'm going to say is, faith, see, your confidence is that it is impossible to woo yourself. One of the basic statements I always have said is, if you are desiring something in your, in your Christian life that is in alignment with Scripture, it's not you that came up with that. It's God that planted that within you. And if he has given you a longing for that which is true, he will meet that longing. When he begins a good work, what will he also do? He'll bring it to completion. He'll finish it. And he has started a work in you. It's wooing you. Well, his intention is to finish that work. What is the enemy's intention? To miscarry or to abort. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. God brings life. God is interested in processing you through to health and life. The enemy wants to miscarry and abort. This is a battle that you're in. Faith that it is impossible to woo yourself. See, these are eight statements of faith. My confidence is in God and his word. And I know that if I'm longing for God, it's not because I whipped up a longing in and of myself. It's because he placed a longing in me. There's another way of saying it. If you are seen... It is because he's helping you see. If you are suddenly seeing that God is, he cannot lie. His word is, in fact, truth. Guess who's helping you see? God. Now, I'm going to go through Scripture to help clarify that. This is not your ability that saves you. It is his power that is saving you. He is awakening you. He is demonstrating himself to you. And he is giving you eyesight to see it. Matthew 16, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? So let's allow Jesus to ask us that question. Who do you say I am? I'm not telling you what they say, what the slick attorney says, what the world says. I'm saying, what do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. How was it revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? It was not revealed just on the, in an earthly sense. It was revealed by the Heavenly Father. You know that I can preach to you, and I can preach truth that comes right out of the Word of God. However, you could totally disregard it and not hear a word of it. You know how you hear the truth? By the grace of God being applied to your soul. That's how you hear. It's an act of grace for you to even be awakened because the things in the Word of God are not discerned with an earthly mind. They are discerned with a heavenly mind, but we don't have that. So we're lost. We have no hope in this world unless God intervenes by his power and his grace and begins to awaken us, to enable us to see and to hear. In Romans 9, 16, it says, It, and I'm describing it as election or the choosing of God, is not of him that wills. Okay, so let's describe me as the him that wills. I want God. And what would Romans 9 say? Uh, by the way, Eric, that wasn't you that came up with that. That was God 
was his election. In other words, God said, hey, Eric, I want you. So if election, it, election, the choosing of God, is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, I made it all the way to heaven's gates. No? How did I get there? By his power. By his work. What is my confidence in? My will? My running? His will. His running. So listen to the whole scripture. It, election, the choosing of God, is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. This is spoken to the disciples, and it's a principle of how God establishes his. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I have chosen you out of the world. Who who did the choosing? God did. Did the disciples say, hey, I would like to follow Jesus? Jesus said, I'd like you to follow me. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he first loved us. Why do you love God? Why are you aimed in this direction? Why are you going in this direction? It's because he is an initiator. Okay? Now, I know some of you that are sensitized to the soteriological debates of Calvinism, Arminianism, suddenly are going way over the line, Eric. I'm just giving you scripture. Okay? It's just a fact. Who saves? Who saves? It's Jesus that saves. Okay? Now you're gonna, now the Calvinists in the room are going to get mad at me because I'm going to talk about, and we must believe. Okay? So we'll get everyone mad. Message. <laughs> Number two. So the first one was faith that we cannot woo ourselves. Second, faith that if you desire salvation, the desire has been planted in you by God himself. Okay, now I know that sounds very similar to the previous one, but it's just more specific. You cannot woo yourself to God. If you desire to be saved, where do you think that's coming from? You know that there are people that have said bald-faced right straight to my face that they want to go to hell. They would rather go to hell. They don't want to be with God. They don't want to be with God's people. They don't like God's people. They like their friends. And if their friends are going to be in hell, that's where they'd rather be. They honestly have no affinity for the things of heaven. They have no desire to be with God. They don't want to be saved by God. Leave me alone, God. Okay, that's the difference here. Faith that if you desire salvation, the desire has been planted in you by God himself. In 1 Corinthians 2, this is so powerful. The first line is the one we've read multiple times so far, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Listen to this. But God hath revealed them unto us, how? By his Spirit. Who is the revealer? God. We are not just the finder. He's the revealer. It's like when I write a book, you know my entire goal is to write it in such a way where the gold nuggets of the book are very easy to grasp, but I want my readers to not feel like I'm thrusting it down their throat, but that they're finding it. It's like, oh, I found a gold nugget. And as an author, I'm going, ah, good, they found it. Well, look at God. Who's the one sticking the gold nuggets out there? God. And yet some of us will find it and go, I found it. Well, yeah, it was stuck right in your path and you tripped over it. It was sort of hard not to. God stuck it there. That your faith should not, oh, sorry, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him. Listen to this. Even so, the things of God knows no man, but the spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. How would you know the things that are freely given to us of God? But by the spirit of God. That's the only way to know it. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, here's a key line. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Okay, so if you are the natural man, the one who is, doesn't have participation in the kingdom of heaven, does not have the gift of the Spirit, guess what? It says point blank. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. They are discerned by means of the Spirit of God. So if you are being awakened, what's working on you? What's affecting you? God. God is affecting you. Number three, faith. So this is where our confidence lies. That it is by faith that you access the grace of salvation. This is a funny sounding one. I recognize all these things probably sound sort of funny to your ears. What do you have confidence in? Now, this is going to sound funny, but you have faith in the fact that faith works. I know it sounds funny, but where is your confidence? In the fact that faith is sufficient to gain access. That you don't have to come over and say, is there anything else? But you actually have confidence. Faith is what God says is needed. I have faith. That means I have access. You see, for full assurance, you have to know these things. You have to understand that God has wooed you. And the only reason you're even attracted to God is because of God. And when he's drawing you, what, do you think conclu- what conclusion do you think we're going to come to? He's not going to turn you away because he wants you. He is wooing you. He has opened the door to you. He's given you an invitation. It's a fairly rude person who sends out an invitation to a party and then when you show up at the door, says, no, actually, I don't want you. You are saved by grace. What does the Bible say? Through faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the grace is accessible in your life through faith and faith alone? It's not through your works. It's not through the good things you're going to do. How are you going to gain that grace? Through faith. Number four. So not just that faith works, but listen to this. This this amps it up a little. Faith, that faith is 100% guaranteed by God himself to work as promised. It's sort of like the money-back guarantee, except for God's guarantees, you could just take them to the bank. God himself says, hey, look, guys, faith is not just my means, but it's guaranteed to work. By who? By me? And I'm like, guys, I think you should just try faith, okay? I honestly do feel that you could, you could access the things of God. I, mean, I'm, I can't prove that to you, but no, God himself says in his word, Guaranteed. I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. How did you even awaken to begin seeking him? God. And so as you seek him, he will reward. Done deal. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? This is the nature of God. You have confidence in this. I want you to begin to clarify in your soul where you have believed the clear, pure word of God 
and where you have begun to allow different things to be sprinkled in and through it. It's like, well, I agree, Eric, that it's faith. I know it says that, but, and what I'd say is, but what? God is the one who makes these things clear over and over and over again. It is almost so simple of a statement that we stumble over it. It is not our work or our ability. Now, here's the key question, because you could say, in James it says, faith without works is dead. I agree. But how do you even begin to do the work of God? Through faith. And what is the evidence that you really are believing? The Spirit of God begins to invade you, and he has a work to do on this earth, and he takes your body and begins to work. So faith without works is not really faith. That's what James is talking about. If you really do believe, your life will be changed. However, we're talking about the first entry to even get access to the grace that changes us and then begins to do a work through us. Do we have to get our soul clean before we come? Do we have to somehow begin to get our life removed of all the impediments and all the things, or do we come just as we are? Key questions. Number five. This is a very important one. Faith that the one drawing you is not a con. When he plants the longing for himself within you, he is not going to answer that longing with a cold disregard. It's a very critical one. One of the principal points of dealing with a soul that feels unworthy, that feels over-blemished. They have done things that have no ability to repent of, but here you are desiring to repent. The fact that you have a desire to repent is the evidence in your soul that God has given you grace to repent. The fact that you long to return to your father's house is the evidence that the father is the one wooing you to it. Do you follow me? God does not play games with our soul. He, if he doesn't want you, will not woo you. Okay, now I'm not going to start crisscrossing with soteriology and talk about who gets wooed and who doesn't. We know that not everyone will come to Christ. But was everyone wooed? That's not something I want to try and step on this morning. I'm already stepping on plenty. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? You have a request of God. Where did that request come from? From God. He's the one that said, hey, I want to save you. I've done everything I I did on that cross for you. And then what do you say? Could I please have the benefits of that cross? You ask, and he's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to give you a serpent in its place. Number six, faith that we need not be without sin to come. You see, where are the cleaning materials for your life found? Do you have the ability to polish up your soul all nice and clean to present yourself to God? If you think you have those, you've been listening to the slick attorney. And he's telling you, you need to get right. You need to be pure. You need to be morally upright before you believe. God can't receive you. You're a wretch. Yes, he knows that. And he makes it very clear. He knows you've been in the slime with the pigs. He knows. And he's still wooing you. 
And even though you still might be covered in the mud and the slop, he says, the only way for you to be clean is by believing in me. So what do we do? The word of God is clear on the matter. Even if you are dirty right now, there's only one way to be clean, and that's not in and of your own penance. Hitting yourself, cutting yourself, that does nothing to solve the inner dilemma. There is nothing you can do outside the grace of God and the cleansing blood of Jesus to clean yourself. You know, so what you do, you come dirty and you say, God, I know I'm dirty and I know this is wrong, but I know on that cross you did what was needed for me to become clean. And I believe there's only one way to be clean and that's in you. So I humbly come before you and say, please, do what you do and clean me up for your glory. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, in that while we were still in the muck, even though while we were still with the pigs, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get all cleaned up. He says, okay, now I'll die. He died when? He made a decision and an act of love, of mercy, of drawing us to himself, even when we were yet sinners. Number seven, faith that as long as we are still breathing, the space for repentance is still there. One of the illustrations I've always used in my mind is the ark uh, in Noah's day. You have that door to the ark that's opened, and what is it, 40 to 70 years in building? I mean, this is a long stretch of time. The rains are going to come. The judgment is going to come. The message is repentance. Repent, turn. What should they do? Get in the ark. Get in the ark. There is only one means of salvation from the judgment that is about to hit the earth. Get in the ark. You know that that door was open until the very day that the rains began. And then it was sealed shut. And to reject the invitation at that point literally meant death. The condemnation was not repentable of again. The door was shut. The door to Jesus Christ is open. You know what closes it? Death. When you die, that door goes hunk and shuts. This is the day to repent. Today is the day to repent. But you must know that as long as we are still breathing, the space for repentance is still there. And you could say, but what about the guy who doesn't even care about Jesus? Can he repent? Well, very simply, I could say it this way. If someone is wallowing in the mud and God is wooing them, they can return to the Father. If someone is wallowing in the mud and God's not wooing them, I don't have much to say on the matter. All I can say is I and the rest of the church, the body of Christ, must deal with those that are being wooed. That's who this message is for. I don't have an answer for those that don't want it. If you are a a swine and you will refuse to accept the pearl and you mistreat it there's nothing I can do God can rescue your soul he can awaken you I can't all I can do is give the truth but I am ill-equipped and unable to save one soul you notice I'm not drawing you to myself I'm saying he's the one who can save I can't even save myself let alone you I can't save the guy in the what's wallowing in the pit but I can appeal to them with the word of truth and I can say, the Father wants you. And they could spit in my face. However, what about the one who, when I say the Father will take you back, 
And he says, he looks up and he says, Willie, that's what I want. More than anything, I'd rather be a servant to my father's house than wallow here with the swine. Come, he's waiting for you at the window. When he sees you, he'll run to you. Come, come. He says, but I'm covered in slime. Come as you are. Come, come. Your father has cleaning materials. Your father knows. Your father knows. Though he knows everything that we have done, he still looks at the window longingly. He still woos us to return. Number eight, faith that no matter how dark our past, there is a brilliant future in Christ for those who come to him. There is not a brilliant future for those in Christ if you do not come to him. If you do not believe, you do not receive. The Israelites died in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. Belief is the access into the land of promise. But belief, it says that their corpses rotted in the wilderness because of unbelief. And then the exhortation is, may we not be as they were. May we not be denied access unto the great promises of our king because we listen to this other voice and we die in our worldly thinking. The questions that reveal spirit wooing. Do you desire to be saved? Do you want Jesus to rescue you? Do you want to be healed from your sin? Do you want to be with God? Do you want to share a common destiny with Jesus? Do you want to be where he is? Do you want forgiveness of your sins? Do you see that you are wrong and that he is right? Do you want God? Because this is something that God has done. This is spirit wooing. This is the grace of God at work in your soul. Putting your confidence in the power of God to save. It is impossible for you to want God without God's help. It's impossible for you to discern Jesus without the help of Jesus. It is impossible for man to see his need of God outside of God's help. Conviction of sin is a work of grace. The cry, what must I do to be saved, is the cry sponsored by the Spirit of God. If you are longing for God, then the power of God is at work on you. If you are longing for God, that's a sure sign that God is longing for you. If you desire God, God wants you. God is not conning your soul. God is not playing a game with your soul. He's not misleading your soul with a chuckle and a tee-hee, showing his angel buddies in heaven. Watch this guy. I'll toy around with him for a while. And so you find yourself getting out of the mud and saying, you think he'll accept me? And then you go all the way to the door, and the father slams it in your face. Says, no, no. You weren't one of the elect. If you desire your God, you can take it to the bank. God wants you. God is wooing you. God is calling you. God, when we know his nature, when we ask for bread, he will not give us a stone. How about this? When he offers us bread, he will not give us a stone. Your God is making an offer to your soul. The only reason you understand it and know it and can see it in the word of God is because of the great grace of God who has given you spiritual discernment to be awakened to say, I need that. Something is wrong with me. I am not as I should be. I shouldn't be covered in mud. I shouldn't have this weight of condemnation upon me. I have fear. I have anxiety. I have fretting and foreboding. I have lust. I have greed. I have pride. I'm enslaved. 
What must I do to be saved? And God says, do you want to know? The solution is Jesus. The solution is the work of the cross. And when you look upon that, you come out of your way and say, I am snake bit. I am not as I ought to be. And you look upon that cross, you can have utter confidence that when you heed what the word of God says and the promises of God, he will be faithful to perform everything he says in his word on your behalf. And as a result, you can have a full assurance, absolute certainty. I know that when I look upon him and I believe that he is the answer for my soul's need, that he will give me life and he will rectify that which is wrong in my soul and he will save me. And then as I come to him for the spirit of God to fill me and to make my body his home so that I can begin to live as I ought to live, I know without a shadow of a doubt that he will give it because he is promised, he is able, and he cannot lie. And the fact that I long for it is enough evidence in my soul to know that I know he longs to give it. You can have certainty. You can take a step forward. You know the action of the soul? Because say that doorway in the back was Jesus. And we needed to walk through that. We needed to believe. How do we believe? That's another question. It's like, well, how do I do that? Belief and certainty, to turn and look upon it. And to reach out is basically the action of the soul. You move forward by saying, I believe that that is true. I agree with God. And by doing it, you are walking straight in. It's not a feeling that saves you. It is the certitude and the confidence that what God has said is true. I believe it. God cannot lie. He is able to save me. He desires to save me. Why? I don't know. But he does. If you desire to be saved, he desires to save you. Getting the truth in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, if you don't agree with God, the spirit of truth is not in you. Introducing the spirit of truth. And I will pray the Father, says Jesus, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Do you remember what I called this over here, the word of God? I called it truth. What goes out to woo us to the, the truth? The spirit of truth. The spirit of truth has been given us. Jesus died and gave us the great cross work. But then he sent forth a helper, one who would woo us who would reveal to us, who would remind us, who would point us to that cross and say, this is true. The spirit of truth. It says, I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What a great statement. For many of us that are being wooed right now, we want it. The statement would be, he dwells with you. And will be in you. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what will the Spirit of truth do? He will testify of me, says Jesus. That's what the Spirit of truth does. If you have the Spirit of truth, what's it going to be telling you about Jesus? It's going to build confidence in Jesus Christ. John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. So if you're being convicted of sin, who's at work? The spirit of truth. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. He will reveal to you that you are not as you ought to be. But he will also reveal the righteousness of Jesus. He will defend the fact that the one who died upon that tree 2,000 years ago was perfectly righteous. And therefore, you are sinful. He is righteous. The only means to gain that righteousness is to listen to the spirit of truth who is wooing you to say, believe. And of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you the things to come. So, when the spirit of truth is working in your life, who's he speaking on behalf of? Speaking on behalf of Jesus, who's speaking on behalf of the Father. So when the spirit of truth is witnessing to your soul the realities of the king, who's talking to you? Not just the spirit of truth. The Father himself is inviting you home. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Oh, nice picture here. What you see is a cross on the left that says Jesus. Jesus in physical form is no longer with us, but he has sent forth his spirit. The very life of Jesus, the very life of God, the impetus of God, the power of God has been given to us. He's a person, the Holy Spirit. And he's known as the deposit or the seal, that which seals us in Christ Jesus. Now, I have this funny thing at the end. It looks like a sideways cross. We live the life of this Jesus this whole time by the Spirit. And there's a death that comes. And the Holy Spirit is the one that oversees our life and maintains us and maintains this good deposit that we've entrusted unto God by faith. Okay? So I'm going to come back to this in just a second. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. And he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Those that are not of God will not hear us. Well, how it could be said, those that are not of God will not heed the spirit of truth. So when the spirit of truth speaks, those that are of God, those that are being awakened by God, those that are born of God, hear it. I don't know how to explain it. And I don't want to go to any great lengths to try and explain it. Just what it says. I just thank God that I'm hearing it. Praise God that I'm just praying with all the gusto I have that you hear it. That's my desire is that everyone would hear it. It's not my responsibility if they don't, but it is my responsibility to do whatever I can to speak whatever the spirit of truth is speaking to me. To give it. That hopefully they would be awakened. They would see it. They would know it. What about my sin? Key question. You may believe that this is all true. You may believe that there is only one way to the Father. You may believe that Jesus is able to save. However, you are outside the boundary of that. You have done something that is not forgivable. If any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Here's our stumbling scripture. There is a sin unto death. 
I do not say that he shall pray for it. So how should I handle that? Should I say, hmm, yeah, that sin out there, that was, that was the wrong one. So as a result, I'm not going to pray for them. Sin unto death. What is the wages of sin? Death. The first is a spiritual. The second is a physical. When someone dies, the door is shut. They have sinned unto death. Their death is the seal. To pray for them after death does, does nothing. Okay, There are actually pockets and denominations that believe that you can pray for people after they die. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't do any good after they die. This is the window. Do you remember that little picture I gave you? You have the cross, and then you have death. The Holy Spirit is wooing in that season. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit and to blaspheme and to deny the wooing and the grace of God in that season before your death is an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. You have a season of repentance. You have an opportunity to heed. You have an opportunity to hear, and the Spirit of God is wooing now. If you choose in your soul to not believe, and you die, there is no more salvation opportunities. There is not another cross that will come to save those that died in their sin and that rejected the appeal of the Holy Spirit when he said, get out of this mud pit and come to your father. And they said, I like my my mud pit, thank you. And they refused, and then they died in that mud pit. That is eternal. However, we are not yet there. And there is still a window of time in your life to turn. And the season of repentance is right now. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Do not insult the Spirit of grace, which is wooing you. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Do you remember that picture I gave you? I don't know if it's the next one here. Yeah, there it is. You see Jesus. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? You know what they were doing to him? They were mocking him, ridiculing, insulting him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. There is forgiveness, even the mockery of the cross, the mockery of the great work of Jesus. It's an amazing thought. However, the Holy Spirit has been sent to turn us to that cross. Though we were in the mud and though we mocked the crucifixion, though we mocked the person of Jesus, the Spirit of God is still here beckoning. Beckoning, beckoning. And if you refuse, and if you turn a blind soul towards it and say, I don't want that, that is unforgivable. Why? Because that's the only means of salvation. However, right now, if you're being wooed, turn. You can say, but I might have already gone too far. Then you wouldn't even be being wooed. The fact that you are being wooed, I know that's a funny word, sounds like I need to have some love song behind me as I say it. The fact that you're being drawn under the spirit of grace, the fact that the Father is being revealed to your soul, the fact that you're seeing his nature and you're seeing the facts of how you access it is a work of grace upon your soul. So look at this. We have Jesus and then rejecting, rebelling, mocking, scourging, blaspheming, and insulting. Then we have the season of repentance. And then we have death. See my nice arrow to death? Rejecting, rebelling, mocking, scourging, blaspheming, and insulting at the point of death, not a healthy thing. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is working for a very singular purpose, and that's to bring you back home to show you the cross, to show you the work of Jesus.
You may have done a terrible thing to hurl insults and to crucify the Lord of glory. You know, if there's something that's going to be unforgivable, I'd say that ranks pretty high. And yet, he says, it will be forgiven. All will be forgiven. All these things will be forgiven. But to then take and spit in the face of my messenger who is wooing you, who is giving you opportunity to repent in a season of repentance, there is no more sacrifice for sins. Insult in the spirit of grace. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. The enemy has stuck that scripture in front of some of us and we don't feel that we can repent. And I'm here to tell you that if you are being wooed to repentance, it is not impossible for you to repent. If you are hardened in your soul and you have rejected any wooing of the Holy Spirit and you've hardened to God, I can't speak to that, but that's not in front of me right now. If that person softens and turns back and says, I want Jesus, then what I'm going to say is the Spirit of God obviously has not been insulted to the point where he cannot receive him. That's the only way we as Christians can function. Otherwise, it's chaos. Well, when I did that, was that like past the point? At what point? How do we measure these things? All we know is that if we're wooed, God woos. If we are desiring to be found in him, it's him that is wooing us. That's our job. We have the opportunity for repentance. Maybe there are some in this world that have hardened to the point where they can't. That's not what we're dealing with today. We're dealing with the fact that you can. Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Don't mess with these things. However, I want you to know, That no matter where you're at right now, if you have a longing to return unto the King of Kings, the invitation is open. And if he's offering you bread, he's not going to give you a stone. That's the simple facts of the matter. You are not hardened to the point where you are not desiring the living God. And you are yearning for repentance. You are yearning for right relationship. Where does that come from? And if you say it only comes from you, you don't understand everything we've gone through this morning. It's a work of grace. It's called backsliding, yes. You know what it says? I will heal their backsliding. Remember the guy in the mud who did taste and then who did go off and spoil it. But when he was wooed, what did he do? There could be 10 other men like him that didn't get up. However, what did he do? He went unto the Father, humbled himself, repented of his debasement and said, let me be a servant in your house. And how did the Father respond? May you understand the Father's nature today. When the door of death closes, so does the saving grace of God. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. If you do not believe, the door is closed. We have a modern movement, Love Wins, Rob Bell, that talks about after death there is a second work of grace, basically. There is another work so that all will end up in heaven. 
That's not what it says in the Bible, though. It sounds good, and I have to admit, that's a really nice-sounding thought, which then makes no accountability to one decision that you ever make in this lifetime. Yet the Word of God itself makes it very clear. If you do not believe this side of death, the door is closed. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So how are you going to get the promise? How are you going to get it? You have to believe. Nine sins of the reprobate, the unrepentable. That's what reprobate means. Unfixable. Can't alter his course. They close their eyes, close the eyes of their soul to the cross. They plug their ears to his truth and claim innocence of sin. They spurn conviction. They spit upon the notion of repentance. They detest the operation of grace. They refuse forgiveness. They deny Christ's rightful claim over their soul and body. They hold in contempt the wooing of the Holy Spirit. They reject the salvation of God Almighty. Is that where you're at? I don't think so. I think you're hungry. You desire God. And as a result, we're not going to classify you as the unrepentant. We're going to classify you as the ready, willing, eager, the ones that are crying out, what must I do to be saved? Is there any hope for poor old me? Because I'm disgusting. And God will very quickly agree, you're not as you should be. But I have done everything you will need to be made right. Turn and look upon me. Full assurance. The rock upon which we stand with certain expectation and the utmost certainty. So this is the list of eight things we went through before. I just want to go through them again. Faith that is impossible to woo yourself. Faith that if you desire salvation, the desire has been planted in you by God himself. Faith that it is by faith that you access the grace of salvation. Faith that faith is 100% guaranteed by God himself to work as promised. And faith that the one drawing you is not a con. When he plants the longing for himself within you, he is not going to answer that longing with a cold disregard. If you ask for bread, he will not give you a stone. And when he offers you bread, he will not give you a stone. Number six, faith that we need not be without sin to come. Faith that as long as we are still breathing, the space for repentance is still there. And faith that no matter how dark our past, there is a brilliant future in Christ for those who come to him. In full assurance. Now, I could have called this message full assurance. Instead, I called it in full assurance. One of the things we're going to be teaching at Ellerslie is about position. Do you know what your position is? In Christ. A Christian who believes is clothed. Just like in that jetliner. They're in the jetliner. When the jetliner takes off, they're now under a higher law. The law of aerodynamics instead of the law of gravity that has always kept them down. We are in Full assurance. What's our full assurance? Jesus. We have faith in Jesus. The power of Jesus. The nature of Jesus. He has done it. And when we find ourselves firmly established in Jesus, we are in full assurance. So being in Christ by faith with all certainty. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Listen to this line. And if anyone sins, what do we have? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Where does your confidence come from? Your ability to live perfectly? Even after you turn to Jesus? No, his ability to live perfectly. Even after you've come to Jesus. 
Your confidence still rests in him, his ability, his nature. Where does your faith go? Back to you? Now that you believe, you say, okay, now I can take it from here. Thanks, God. I trust me. The entire while you trust him. You can't live this life without his help. Who is he who condemns? Key key question. Who is it that condemns? Listen to the answer. It is Christ who died. Who are you vulnerable to? Who is the one who could condemn your soul? It's Jesus. The very one who's wooing you unto himself. The very one who rescued you. And because God so loved you, Jesus was sent to fully express the nature of the Father to you. Who condemns? Jesus. It says, who is it that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. Listen to this last line, who also makes intercession for us. The very one who holds your life in the hollow of his hand is the very one who is laboring on your behalf. It's not that the enemy is the one that's trying to condemn you, even though he is. It's God who condemns. God who holds the judgment seat. Not Satan. The very one who holds the final say in the matter and is saying, I've given you a season. Repent. Turn from your wickedness. Who has sent forth his very spirit to woo us unto himself is also the very one who holds the judgment. And your judge is also your greatest advocate. So he is not going to close the book on your life quickly. He is wooing and he's given up everything. You cannot complain about what Jesus Christ has given. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Turn to him. Turn to him with confidence. The message is called in full assurance. There's no wobbly knees when it comes to coming to Jesus Christ. One of the works of grace given us at the cross is that we can be certain of our position in Christ Jesus. No wobble, no stagger, no waver, no back and forth. We stand fixed, immovable upon a rock, and when winds and rains beat against our house, we will not be moved. We believe the record. What God said is true. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.